If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 484. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Subscribe to them all as well. I mean... Go out there and do that. Go get on YouTube. Go get on Twitter. That's where I do most of my posting. Go do that and uh, follow me there. Also, get that free ebook if you just give me that email address at brianmcclanahan.com, Forgotten Founders. It's a great gift. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com and roll there free of charge. Get the free class, 10 Myths of American History. I've got a lot of great stuff there. Buy one of my books. I've got nine of those. My latest is The Jeffersonian Tradition. Uh, you know, share the podcast around on social media, rate where you get your podcasts, send me those show requests, do all you can to help become part of the show. I do appreciate everything you do in trying to promote the show. Get your Brian McClanahan show gear, advertise the show. It's a great way to do it. And we're only going to win if we get more people on our side. And I think that's something that uh, is very important as we look at the insurmountable odds it almost seems like we have. I've said it before, we're climbing Mount Everest in flip-flops and shorts and uh, with no oxygen. I mean, this is what we're trying to do. It's tough. But people have climbed Mount Everest before, maybe not flip-flops and shorts, but they've climbed it before with no oxygen, so maybe we can do it. It's, uh, it's a daunting task, particularly when your friends are basically on the left. And this is what I've said. Again, this is continuation of this theme with Michael Anton and the discussions discussion that I had last, uh, last episode, and I'm also going to talk about tomorrow. Um, but let's talk about another piece this week, and this gets into the same thing. This is from 1987 now. We, yesterday was 1962. We've gone forward 25 years, a quarter of a century. And this piece comes from Chronicles Magazine in 1987. It's written by Clyde Wilson. Full disclosure, Clyde Wilson was my advisor in graduate school. And so if uh, Michael Anton is going to run around saying, my teacher, my teacher. Well, Clyde Wilson was one of my teachers. But I will say this. Clyde didn't proselytize. Clyde didn't go out and say, uh, you're going to think this. Or These are the... He did present materials, but he was always more interested in primary sources than anything. And this is because... For most of his academic career, he edited the John C. Calhoun papers. So he read Calhoun to understand Calhoun. Not what everybody said about Calhoun, but what Calhoun said about Calhoun. And in fact, I don't think Michael Anton really understands Calhoun or the concurrent majority. He really doesn't get it at all. If you go and you read what Calhoun actually said about it, it's almost the exact opposite what the Straussians, the Jaffaites, all these people are saying about the concurrent majority. They really don't get it. They don't understand it. And so when you read the primary documents, I mean, look, I have my understanding of the Constitution, not because of what uh, somebody said about the Constitution, 
but because of what I've seen they've said about the, what the people themselves who wrote it and ratified it said about the Constitution. That's my understanding of the Constitution. And so I go right to the sources. People ask, what book should I read on this? What book should... Go to the sources. If you can, if you're talking about a major historical figure and you have access to their materials, go read their stuff. That's the only way to do it. And Clyde's advice always was read, read, read. Read as much as you can in primary documents because that's how you understand things. Don't read what everybody else reads. And I will tell you, Forrest MacDonald had, had essentially the exact same idea. He would have his wife read all the secondary material and then tell him what to read so he knew it. But then also MacDonald lived in the primary documents. He lived in the documents themselves. If you really want to know what somebody thought, you go read the primary documents. For example, if somebody wanted to really see what I thought, well, you would listen to this podcast. You would go read what I've written. This is what you would, you would know what I thought by what I wrote. Any other type of generalization should be rejected. I mean, when people say things about me uh, that they've never even read what I've written on things, well, then they're just making a generalization. They have no idea. And essentially, that's what we do. That's what most people do with most sub subjects and figures in history. So I want to read this particular piece, What the Founders Didn't Count On. 1987, December of 1987, Chronicles Magazine. Of course, we're here. Uh, this, is, this is written in the bicentennial year of the U.S. Constitution. And so in that way, we're at a point where we're talking about um, the bicentennial. Right? We just had it May through September. December 1987 is 200 years since uh, Pennsylvania, for example, ratified the Constitution and that ratifying convention, or Delaware, you know, in that period of time. So he begins with a quote by William Jennings Bryan. I assert that the people of the United States have sufficient patriotism and intelligence to sit in judgment on every question which has arisen or which will arise no matter how long our government will endure. So we talked about populism. I did a, a piece by Clyde Wilson a couple of weeks ago. What is American populism? And we're back to Clyde on this. He says, as citizens, it is fitting that we engage in acts of civic piety while celebrating the bicentennial of the federal constitution. That celebration acknowledges that, the, that in some sense, the Constitution is a success. Given the long record of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind and the perishability of free and popular governments, it is a success in which we can take great satisfaction. But as a historian and even as a conscientious citizen, I cannot put aside a disquieting question. Which Constitution am I being asked to celebrate? This is an important question. See, remember, Kendall at the end of his piece said, we need to focus on the Federalist Papers. That's the key. The Constitution, the the, not the ratification debates, but the Federalists, which is part of that debate. The Philadelphia Convention itself, the Constitution. That's what we need to focus on. That's what we have to do. So Clyde is saying, all right, well, wait a second here. Which Constitution are we celebrating? This is 25 years later. Which one are we being asked to celebrate? Even if we do not subscribe to an evolutionary rendering of the Constitution, as opposed to original intent, we are forced to recognize that the Constitution has a history. Besides many lesser scars, it carries on its face the great and bloody gash of civil war and reconstruction, an unparalleled social upheaval which was, in essence, a question of constitutional interpretation. Even if carried away by the moment and the warm glow of patriotism, not something to be despised, we can put aside the complications of history. Still, we are confronted with a constitution that means different things to different people, things that are sometimes mutually exclusive. Opposing the Bork nominations, someone recently wrote to the letters, 
columns of time. His reliance on original intent precludes the notion that the Founding Fathers originally intended us to evolve as a people into something better than we are. The nation and indeed the President's legacy would be better served by a justice who views the Constitution as a living part of the present rather than a relic from the past. This passage encapsulates a vast region of mischief and misunderstanding, which includes both the proponents and the opponents of original intent. A few obviously political points can be made. Would we be better, better people by having more abortions, by executing fewer murderers, by having fewer prayers in fewer places, by oppressing more people with reverse discrimination? But it is more interesting that the letter writer does not reject original intent. Indeed, logically, no one can. Rather, he has supplanted the original intent for the written constitution with the original, an original intent of the founding fathers, for us to evolve as a people into something better than we are. Those realistic Republicans, the framers, skeptical of human nature and anxious to construct a power that was both effective and limited, content with compromise, have been converted into a priestly caste who bequeathed to us a secret mission of evolving into better things. This is important, because what Clyde Wilson is pointing out here is Michael Anton. This is what conservatives now, he's saying that the people on the right are just as bad with this stuff. He's pointing out Michael Anton to be better than we are, to be modern-day social justice warriors, on, if you're the 1619 Project, or modern-day equality warriors that stopped at some point. This appeal to the higher law is legally, logically, and historically an absurdity. It traces back not to the founding, but to transcendentalism, which was a 19th century vulgar vulgarization by a small but influential group of Americans of German philosophy. Carlyle took Emerson, Emerson around the London slums again and again, but he could never make him believe in the reality of the devil. This letter writer could be taken around history again and again, but could never be convinced that the framers did not share his aspirations. They were sensibly hopeful men and principled Republicans, which is not the same as devotees of national evolution. This confusion of the Constitution with some sort of subversive higher law, one way or another, is nearly pervasive among both the liberals and the conservatives, though it takes different forms at different times. Though a good deal more clever and circumstantial about it, the faculty of the Harvard Law School present essentially the same view of the Constitution. They have read into it an intent, or at least a natural tendency, to evolve into meanings that extend the ideological program of social democracy. The Constitution evolves, but only in the direction they say. They say. Only direction they say, right? Keep that in mind for tomorrow's show. Although evolution is presumably by definition open-ended, it cannot evolve in directions they do not approve of, even if such an evolution is compatible with its letter in history. The Supreme Court is supposed to read the election returns, but only if the returns turn out their way. Once the court has discovered something in the Constitution, no one else is allowed to discover something that contradicts it, a curiously limited and controlled form of evolution. Thus, there is a federal right to prevent the states from prohibiting abortions, but there can be no federal right to prevent the states from allowing them. In fact, both proponents and are, are nonsense, both propositions sorry, are nonsense because the real original intent of the Constitution, even with the 14th Amendment added, is not a matter in which there is any federal power nor any judicial power except in the most limited sense. This is true, right? So there's only powers that are there, but they're, they're limited. The simple truth is that the constitution of our forefathers is not very compatible with the commercial progressivism by way of federal power of the conservatives and not compatible at all with the progressive egalitarianism by way of federal power of the liberals. Since these have become the foremost American values, the constitution has to give. 
The question is not between original intent and interpretation. It is who will interpret. Not whether the Constitution will give, but how much and in what direction. So, I mean, this is this is important. I mean, he's getting to the point here. Conservatives and on the right and liberals on the left, or whatever you want to call them, progressives. He's even using the term progressives here because he's pointing out exactly what they are in 1987. I used to teach progressivism for years and pointed out this what the left was, and they finally adopted the term. They went away from liberals. But the, the point is that they're all playing the same game on the same field. We need to play a different game. He's saying this in 1987. This is what I said in 2021. I've said it many other times before, even before 2021 in Chronicles. I've said it over and over again. But that's essentially what he's saying in 1987. So incompatible is the Constitution with programmatic egalitarianism that we have to in, had to invent a secret history of abolitionism on the part of the framers. On the flimsiest, flimsiest evidence against both the letter and the substantive history of the instrument, we have postulated that the framers intended to do away with slavery but could not quite manage it immediately. It is true that some, not all, had vaguely anti-slavery sentiments, which in general had a lower priority than the interests of the main codfish industry, but no one believed, neither the framers nor the public, they possessed the power to abolish slavery. It's one thing to be pleased that the 13th and 14th Amendments did away with slavery three generations after the founding. It is another to attribute false motives and anachronistic powers to the founders. Judging from the number of times this false history is alluded to, our self-esteem seems to be bound up with it. Perhaps we have a secret, unacknowledged fear to admit the founders were really not entirely like us, because we would then have to throw them out completely. This is Anton, right? I love that line because of Anton, and he asked me, well, if the founders are racist, then we really can't like them, can we? Well, yes, we can. This is Michael Anton. Well, the founders are racist. I really can't like them then. If they're racist, if George Washington's a racist, well, why can we even celebrate that guy? If Thomas Jefferson is really so bad, how can we celebrate Thomas Jefferson? Because we can. Because they're not like us, but they said a lot of great things and did a lot of great things. As I said in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, they are the greatest generation in American history. Now, Chronicles tried to, they, they tweaked that language, but I said it. I said it. Anyone who's honestly and closely studied the founders' years and the period, founding years and the years that followed, knows how large state right, states' rights loomed in the understanding of the Constitution in those days. Although there was some disagreement, some ambivalence, and even a few cases of disingenuousness, disingenuousness among the founders about the locus of sovereignty, there can be no doubt that most of the founders and the subsequent two or three generations of statesmen accepted as natural and right the broadest possible idea of states' rights. To most of the founding generation, the Bill of Rights meant primarily a bonding of the federal government by the states. To most people of the time, the victory of Jefferson and his friends in 1800 signified primarily the defeat of a too assertive federal power. Throughout the first half of the 19th century, the absolute central principle of the Jeffersonian Party and of the Democratic Party, which came along later, was states' rights, the belief that the states were the truest representatives of the people's will and the best guardians of the people's liberty. And this belief was matched by democratic sentiment. The more faith one had in the people, the more allegiance they gave one gave to states' rights. As recently as 1932, the Democratic Party went on record against the dangers of an overextended federal government. And that's true. Franklin Roosevelt actually ran on a platform of too much federal power. <laughs> we need to get... And then, of course, he did the exact opposite. Why Roosevelt so disastrous? It is not likely that the states' rights will be affirmed during our current bicentennial even in historical context. What would the founders, or indeed anyone before 1932, have made of a situation in which the states have all but disappeared except as administrative units and electoral counters of the federal machinery?
and all in the name of freedom and the rights of the individual. Today, the federal government, and usually the unelected parts of it, determine the qualifications of the voters and the apportionment of the legislatures of the states. It determines the curriculum and student assignments of their public schools, the rules of proceedings in their criminal courts, the speed limits on their highways, the number of parking spaces of the handicapped in their public and private buildings. We observe the strange spectacle of legislatures required to pass laws according to specifications drawn by federal judges and federal bureaucrats, which, of course, is not lawmaking at all. The states may have larger budgets and do more things than ever before, but their constitutional authority has never been lower. This is Think Locally, Act Locally in 1987. This is the revolution that really is happening in America. The states are waking up. Here we are. Almost, I mean, we're at 35 years after this almost, but the states are waking up. 35 years later, we're seeing more of this. This is thinking locally, acting locally. In this perspective of American history or the founders, there is absolutely amazing development. A revolution consumed, consummated entirely since 1960, which has had less impact on the public consciousness than the Super Bowl or Michael Jackson. The appeal to federally guaranteed individual rights as the chief evolutionary feature of the Constitution is essentially anti-democratic. It takes the Constitution away from the people whose Constitution it is and gives it into the keeping of an elite class that considers itself the master of mysteries that no majority, either state or federal, can tamper with. It is not the dead letter of the past that the advocates of an evolutionary Constitution fear. What they fear is the restraining hand of consensus, that is, of democracy. I think he's getting on to something here. Like, for example, California prohibited affirmative action. That was the will of the people of the state of California. Yet, the attacks come from the courts. The states have always been a depository of democratic thought. The people want things, and the federal government knocks it down. So what they're saying here, what he's, he's getting to, the left doesn't fear... The left fears democracy. This is what they really fear because they know they can't get their agenda through if they really wanted to through elected officials. Now, they're trying with immigration, with indoctrination camps. We call those universities and colleges. They're trying, but they can't win. So they have to use the courts. They have to. And this, this is where the living document comes into play. They got to use the courts to get what they want because the people don't want it. When it's presented to them out in the open, The people don't want it. As an evolutionary constitution implies a path of evolution, either inevitable or accurately pursued. But who is to discern the path? The Supreme Court of the later 19th century thought the path was illuminated by Herbert Spencer. More recently, egalitarian social democracy has been the beacon. In either case, we have a guardian class of savants privileged to lead the way. The status of such men rests not on the talents of, or public services, but on claims to special revelation. In other words, they are not Republican delegates of the people, but priestly oracles, what the founders would have immediately seen to be clever usurpers, and to us hardly distinguishable from the vanguard of the proletariat. It is true that majorities can be wrong and that minorities have indefensible rights enshrined within the spirit of the Constitution, but make no mistake. Or elitist interpreters and molders of the Constitution are not talking about the rights of minorities to be defended and defend themselves. They're talking about the rights of a minority themselves to rule, to be the sovereign, the ultimate authority. This is not a theory, but a fact. Not talking about rights, they're talking about power, is what he's saying. And this is true. What the left really wants is power. It's, it's evident. And everything they do, what they're really interested in is power. 
power, power, power. Now, they've created a faction. The party, the Democrat Party, has been the vehicle for this because what it's done is allowed different factions, different minority groups to coalesce together in the spirit of majoritarianism because put them all together and they've got a numerical majority. This is what Calhoun warned against, a numerical majority, because that's what it really is. If you put them all together, all the different factions, they have a numerical majority. We've seen that in the last two elections. Trump lost the popular vote in the last two elections, primarily because of California. But we've seen it, and this is why the left is upset, because they think they have the numerical majority, but the system, as Kendall pointed out, still resists these things, so it puts checks on it. So they got to undo the system. It is curious truth that those who claim rationality, the liberals, with their penchant revolution reliance on the supposedly objective spirit and findings of social science, always resort to the most irrational view of the Constitution. On the one hand, to a mystical and disembodied appeal beyond the letter, and on the other, to the most petty and deceitful manipulations of the plain sense. One of the most obvious results of this is to remove the Constitution from the people and have it perform as a cover for elitism. But in fact, the Constitution, properly understood, does not give any rights at all. The most essential point of a written Constitution is that, it, is that a limitation of government. The people establish institutions and give up to them certain powers and no more. The government is not presumed to give the people their rights, and indeed the Bill of Rights is cast in a negative form. The Congress shall make no law. That is, our rights are not a grant from the federal government, and the chief duty of the federal government is to refrain from interfering with them and leave to our real communities their day-to-day definition and application. By this analysis, all that the 14th Amendment intended was to make the freedman citizens. This is true. There was no reading into it, no... Uh, incorporation of anything. doesn't give anybody rights. There is a certain liberal spirit, generally American and legitimately derived from Jefferson, which says that the earth belongs to the living generation, which must be free to make its own arrangements. But our current evolutionists represent the exact opposite of the spirit. They represent not a forthright amendment by popular consent, which can be completely compatible with the spirit of traditions and institutions, but an essentially rigid and disguised manipulation of the existing Constitution. I have said that the appeal over the Constitution to the higher law is pervasive. For example, I have before me a Reader's Digest containing the reflections of the ex-Chief Justice Berger on how our Constitution should be viewed and celebrated. It is impossible to imagine anything more mainstream. I set aside the silliness of of the title, The Birth of a True Nation. I quote the blurb, which is not in the language of Berger, but is a not unfair representation of his sentiments expressed on this and other occasions. Two centuries ago in Philadelphia, one of the most extraordinary events in all human history occurred, and America and the world were thereby transformed. The framing of the Constitution was a a remarkable event, but I will have to reflect a little on the invention of the wheel and the appearance of Jesus before conceding one of the most extraordinary events in all of human history. Further, the Constitution was not a unique event, but a part of a series of events, which ought to be understood not as a miracle of Philadelphia, but rather as a realistic human achievement. Every clause of the Digest statement is, in fact, either a falsehood or a gross exaggeration. This is the uh, the miracle of Philadelphia. I mean, it's a book published in 1987 by that particular tile, title. Uh, Birkin, I think, Carol Birkin wrote that. And it, I mean, this is the idea. This is a miracle. We have this miracle document. And the right runs with this stuff a lot. This is a miracle wasn't. 
at all. But we have here not only America transformed, but also the world. Now, it is true that the founders sometimes appealed to mankind. However, they did not deal in emotions, ideologies, and fantasies, but principles. They had a modest hope that by the successful operation of Republican principles, they might provide an example and inspiration for other peoples. Nothing could have been further from them than in the spirit of making the world safer democracy. If someone had blathered global democracy, the official rhetoric of the chosen intellectuals of the Reagan administration, to General Washington, he would have reached for his sword. Global democracy, in specific historical terms, goes back to the 1930s, when it was created as a part of uh, Wilsonianism and Soviet popular front propaganda. Given the propensity of American governments for dropping high explosives on the enemies of democracy, such propaganda can do nothing in the 1980s but make every intelligent foreigner feel uneasy and render prudent discussion of the national interest nearly impossible. In the past 50 years, a great achievement in the founding of government for Americans becomes a cover for the dreams of conservative politicians and intellectuals for world transformation. So he's pointing out here that the conservatives really aren't that conservative. And again, this gets back to the leftist. He's saying this is all Wilsonian. This is all a leftist drive that conservatives, quote-unquote, have adopted. I am less offended by the federal license of the ex-Chief Justice blurb than I am by its spirit. The tone is all wrong. For a bicentennial statement, it smacks of a splendid child congratulating himself on daddy's riches. The framers, I believe, would not want to be worshipped as workers of a miracle. What they would want is the decent respect of sensible men for the hard-won achievements of their fathers. The glorification of the framers as demigods is a form of mystification that naturally lends itself to elitist rule. If the Constitution is a miracle, then it had to be treated as a holy object and handed only out by the priests, not by the common run of humanity. To treat the Philadelphia Convention as a gathering of demigods is worse than foolish and un undemocratic, so far it prevents any real appreciation of their achievements. The members of the convention, the framers, were an able lot. Some were great. Yet, in the final analysis, they were not omnipotent or omniscient, but were merely the delegates of the states. Some very able men who were selected by the states refused to go, either because they had more pressing business or were suspicious of the proceedings. Others were quite desultory in attendance, and several of the best men there refused to sign the finished product. Nor did the framers establish or proclaim a new constitution, something they had no authority to do. What they did was to draw up a convincing and appealing proposal, convincing and appealing because it attended, attended to meet the occasion and to anticipate the future. A proposal that, after a considerable amount of explanation and qualification, and amendments promised, was eventually approved by an effective majority of the people in each of the states, that is, by the people of the United States, as already defined by existing political communities. Those who ratified the Constitution are its real founders. It is wrong, therefore, to cite the debates in Philadelphia as definitive original intent or as useful and illuminating as they may be in subsidiary sense. It is the powers that ratified it that determine, in the final analysis, what the intent of the Constitution is. Fortunately, to declare this is merely to declare the validity of democracy and of federalism. And this is one of the most important things he said. Look, this is, again, why I did originalist papers. We have to talk about the ratifiers. What did the ratifiers say the Constitution meant? That's the Constitution. And it wasn't what we're getting today. And to go back to the Philadelphia Convention is fine. I and mean, we can talk about that and what they said. You know, these things might mean. But until we get to the ratifying debates, that's where it really meant something. And this is where Kendall is saying that you know, we have to read the Federalist. Reading the, reading the Philadelphia Convention is irrelevant in many ways. 
How far we fall short of their achievement. In truth, the Framers' Constitution, one of the things they took for granted was an adequate supply of intelligence and honor. Reflect on the magical period in the history of self-government during the last decade when we had Gerald Ford for president, Nelson Rockefeller for vice president, Warren Burger for chief justice, and Tip O'Neill for speaker. At the time of the framers, the justices of the peace of any small county in Virginia or the selectmen of any town in Connecticut could have mustered more intelligence than the whole of the government today. This is true. By intelligence, I mean learning, wisdom, foresight, Digested experience, detached elite ethics, not shrewdness and self-promotion, conceit, visionary schemes, and vague good intentions. The Founding Fathers did not anticipate the ravages of the two-party system and its ability to deter the best from public life and foist vocal mediocrities on the public. The Constitution presupposed an inexhaustible supply of able and honorable and independent public men. Almost all of our leaders are now the creatures of political parties, which means that, ipso facto, they are more adept at winning office than at filling than at uh, filling them, at manipulation and self-promotion, than at statesmanship. The replacement of the independent gentleman by the professional politician beginning in the 19th century, a reflection of changes in society and the capacity of clever men to manipulate even wisely constructed institutions to their advantage, provided a serious distortion of the Constitution, as did the rise of lawyers. So, I mean, Clive's making a good point here. When you go back and you read the Originalist papers, and I do this in the Originalist, or all these ratification debates, I do this in the class. You read what these guys said about virtue and honor, and they did not see the current political class. They were short-sighted. They thought Americans would all be like them. They would all be great men, men of action. They wouldn't stand for things that we stand for today. They couldn't. They couldn't see that. How could Americans be so sorry? How could they be that way? How could they lack the spirit to resist things that they should resist? Original intent, properly speaking, is a legal and not a constitutional idea. The original intent of a piece of legislation may be determined by reference to its legislative history. However, original intent of the Constitution is not similarly determinable because the intent was given to the Constitution by the people who ratified it. An appeal to the Philadelphia Convention, known chiefly through the partial notes of Madison, is not strictly analogous to an appeal to legislative history. The Constitution can be finally interpreted only historically, not by judges. It is also important to note that the original intent of a particular provision of the Constitution and the original intent of the Constitution on the, in the large sense are different questions. Well, this is true. When you get an original intent, what does that mean? And of course, I say it's the, the whole core of this, as Clyde said early in the essay, is federalism. States' rights, that was the whole key, and federalism. That's, that's the whole thing. Original intent was federalism. Now, a particular clause, well, you can get to these kind of things. What did this mean? But you have to take it, take it within the context of how the entire document was argued. And that was that the federal government had limited powers. So you have to interpret it narrowly in that way. What was the very narrow thing they thought this could do? This is the Jeffersonian position throughout much of the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. I've often heard members of Congress and other public officers answer a constitutional question with the quip that they are not constitutional lawyers. Nonsense. Members of Congress, the President, and more importantly, the people and officials in the states have just as much standing in interpreting the Constitution as any panel of lawyers or law professors, whether or not the latter have yet been appointed to the federal bench. The founders never intended that the high political questions of constitutional interpretation would be at the mercy of lawyers' tricks. There is a piece of erroneous folklore, folklore, again dating to the 19th century distortions of the founding, that the Constitution is a special keeping of lawyers. In fact, relatively few of the framers were practicing lawyers. 
Primarily, they occupied their time as owners of plantations or other large estates or as merchants. They were also clergymen and educators, among other uh, represented professions. It is true that a good many were trained in law. Law was considered a useful study which enhanced one's ability to manage one's own interests and participate in public life because it was a storehouse of English traditions of order and liberty. However, it was not considered, except by a few of the framers who were not the most trustworthy, that a decent man would be devote his primary attention to the daily practice of law. The founders recognized no aristocracies except those of talent, service, and social weight. They would regard the Constitution today as the tools of an aristocracy of federal judges drawn from a class of lawyers and law professors who study is not of noble traditions of liberty and order, but of the defense of large vested interests, whether of big business or the established left-wing causes of the New York of the new class. It would be difficult to imagine any group taken as a group more dissimilar to the great landowners and Republican gentlemen of the founding than the choice legal scholars of the late 20th century America. The former were representatives of their communities and the betters, I'm sorry, the bearers of wisdom and vision. The latter are the representatives of vested interests and of arcane manipulations. There was a major mistake that the framers, for the most part, did not expect. The Constitution was not intended to be, except in a subsidiary sense, a legal document. It was not expected that it would be interpreted by lawyers, much less by law professors. The Constitution is a political document. Lawyers and judges are qualified to deal with legal matters. Study the law per se or pursuance of legal procedures per se will never yield an accurate or lasting interpretation of the Constitution in this large sense. Justice O'Connor recently observed that every Supreme Court decision becomes, at the hands of clever lawyers, raw material for 100 new cases. Well, this is true. I mean, so they did... This is something something I said to Michael Anton, that the Declaration was not organic law. There's no law. There's no positive law in it. It's a series of restraints. That's the whole point. It doesn't create any law. It allows Congress to create laws, but it's not a law itself. It's not organic in that way. The Constitution, the Declaration has nothing like that, except it espouses principles of self-determination and self-government. That's what it does. We know that the Constitution has changed and continues to do so. If we look into what Constitution deserves our respect, we find two current views. One, put forth by recent Supreme Courts and their defenders, says that the Constitution is an evolutionary document whose great value lies in its adaptability. According to this, it follows that is the right or even the duty of the Supreme Court from time to time to bring the Constitution up to date. We can hardly deny that the Constitution has changed and evolved. It has a history. However, from the observations that the Constitution must be viewed historically, it does not necessarily follow that the Supreme Court should be the arbiter of that change. In fact, this would not have been accepted by the main body of the founders. The other view of the Constitution current today is that we are bound by its intent unless we want to amend it in the proper way. The founders, at least that majority who were not over-involved in a specific agenda, would not have demurred from this proposition. But it is obviously true that the intent of the Constitution is a, is a historical question. That is to say, questions of original intent are most properly answered not by legal reasoning and legal tradition, nor by abstract speculation or democratic philosophy or individual rights, but by references to the historical record. This is important. This is why I give you a history class on original intent because that's what it comes down to. This is a political and historical question, not a legal question. I'm emph- in emphasizing the historical record, there are two things I am not saying. I am not suggesting in the manner of Charles Beard that there is some secret, dirty story to be fettered out by historians. Nor am I saying that only professional historians can be allowed to put the Constitution in context. 
for any intelligent person can make a valid historical observation. If we do not rely on legal interpretations to discern the intent of the Constitution, nor on the specialist knowledge of historians, nor on philosophical speculation, what do we rely on? We rely on history. And history, if it is not a specialist but a people's history, is exactly what we mean by tradition, a widely shared understanding handed down from generation to generation. A people's history may well embody some mythological elements or some evolutionary developments, because popular traditions are never precisely accurate in the specialist sense. But after all, the Constitution rests upon the consent of the people, and it is therefore, in the final analysis, the people who have a right to determine its intent. If we argue that this is a perilous and unworkable doctrine, then we are merely declaring that democracy and federalism are unacceptable. Of course, if we accept this proposition, our problems are only beginning. For we are still faced with the task of translating the people's understanding, which is a tacit thing, into the established mechanisms of government. This would seem to require the services of a statesman, who in Andrew Lytle's definition has the mission of clarifying for a given people their alternatives. Since we have no statesman, then perhaps the best we can do is to get the best judges we can find and trust them. This indeed has has been the position of most of those who have thought of themselves as conservatives through this century, though it cannot be considered a resoundingly successful strategy. The defenders of original intent argue with ability and earnestness and morality and sense, but the Constitution they defend is not the Federal Republican instrument ratified in 1787 and 1788. It is the one invented and refounded in the middle of the 19th century by democratic nationalists who accompany and foster the development of a commercial republic, a Constitution under which lawyers formed an aristocracy, an impulse which Tocqueville observed at work in its early stages. As the world goes, the Constitution compared the one invented by the Supreme Court in the middle of the 20th century will serve us just fine, if we can get back, get it back. Unlike our current model, it did not violate the essential principles of republicanism and federalism. I am inclined to think that the framers, men of another age, would be profoundly uncomfortable with the state of our society today. But being creative realists and observing that the ill fit between the Constitution and our society and the misuses to which the Constitution has been put they might well conclude that we ought to follow their example and make a new constitution, more in keeping with our aspirations, even though they would doubt that we had the wisdom and virtue to build as well as they did. Now, I think that, where are we? Now, Clyde's coming down against originalism there, and I think he's looking at it from a stance of original intent in modern-day lawyers. But when you go back and look at the document, you try to figure out what these people were saying. He's had it right. Look, at the beginning was all federalism and states' rights. That's it. That's it. And if we got back to that, it would be great. Can we get back to that, though, is the real question. Well, it comes down to education. And this is why you're listening to this podcast. This is why you're at McClanahan Academy. This is why you're doing these things to try to, because you're going to take that and then you're going to act on it by voting, by engaging people, by getting involved in local government, local action, or even broader, you know, getting involved in bigger issues of state, national, quote-unquote, national policy. You're going to do these things. This is why it matters. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time on the next one. See you then.